So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. And in that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. In worship classes in seminary, one has to write papers comparing the Roman Catholic Mass, the Eastern Orthodox Mass, and the way we worship in the Protestant Church. That's where I first really came to know the church year. Uh, in the small Methodist church where I grew up, we didn't honor the church year. We had Christmas, we had Easter, but we didn't have all the other things in between. And I discovered that the Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox call these long, hot summer Sundays ordinary time. That they were in the Sundays they called ordinary time. Still wearing red, still the season of Pentecost, but we've now been through all the major seasons of the year. The church year. Advent, leading up to the birth of our Lord Jesus and his coming again. Christmastide, Epiphany, Lent, Eastertide, Pentecost, that fresh new inblowing of the Holy Spirit, and then ordinary time. Ordinary time. And the lections for these Sundays in the heart of the summer are lections about how are you dealing with Tuesday? How are you really getting along Thursdays and Fridays? How are you living in the everyday? Epaphras had gone to Colossae. He had told them about Israel's God, the only real God. He had told them that Israel's God had decided to reveal himself to us Gentiles in the form of Mary's child, our Lord Jesus. And a group had believed. Not thousands. They didn't have a big cathedral. A double handful probably meeting in somebody's home. The letter goes back to Colossae. Are you doing what you were taught? Are you living the way I described that you ought? Or are you going back to your old pagan heathen ways? Four things in this passage I want you to think about as you come to the table. Number one. So, he begins this passage, So if you have been raised with Christ... Have you been raised with Christ? The scholars I read this week said, We think this is an allusion to baptism. When Jesus went to be baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan, he walked out into the edge of the river. Uh, the Jordan reminds me of the Illinois River. It's not a huge river like the Mississippi, certainly not the Amazon. It's a little river, and it's not very deep in most places. You can see cows wading across it in some parts. Jesus walked out into the river, 
John baptized him, and he came up out of the river. In Jerusalem, you can see the ruins where they've dug down into the old city. Ruins of the pools like Siloam, where people walked down into the water and back up again. We see pictures on our television of people wading out into the Indus when there was a big uh, uh, eclipse of the sun recently. They walked out into the holy river and then came up out of the water again. When we baptize, we ask people to kneel so they are lower than the font and we put the water onto their heads. They are under the water and then they are raised with Christ. Most of you know that for a little more than four years now, I've been making the telephone calls of people who come to visit with us, worship with us, uh, seeing if I can help them find a church home here with us at Boston Avenue. About this time last year, a young man suddenly started appearing at worship here. I didn't meet him. He didn't come and speak to me. But there was his name. There was a phone number. I tried calling him at different times of the day and night. I tried calling him different days and nights of the week. Didn't get him for quite some time. He'd come one Sunday, then he wouldn't come for three or four. Then he'd come back again. And finally, mid-fall, I got him to talk with me one night. Turns out that he had worked for one of the major retailers here in Tulsa. And about three, four, uh, three Sundays out of four, he had to work. And then he'd be back at Boston Avenue. In that conversation, I finally got around to one of the really important questions. Have you ever been baptized, David? No, he said he hadn't. I said, do you know what we would ask you if you thought you might be ready to be baptized? And I started over the questions, and he seemed a little bit confused about some of the things I was saying to him. So I said, could we get together on your day off? Could I meet you somewhere? Would you come to the church? Let me show you around, give you a guided tour myself. He said he would like to do that. So that morning he had told me he, would, he arrived. Nice-looking young man. We sat down first in the Aldersgate room and visited a few minutes, and then I started walking him around. I told him all the questions that we would ask. I went over the answers with him. Have any questions? No, he thought he had all that. I said, is that what you believe? In God, in Christ, forgiveness of sins, grace of God, setting you right with God, and so on? Yeah, he understood. I said, next Sunday, when we sing the closing hymn, will you come forward and let me introduce you to the congregation and then ask, we baptize you? No, that's a lot of people, he said. That's a lot of people. I said, okay. Okay, then you and I can do this. We can do this. Well, he thought about it a second. He said, but if baptism is so important, I ought not to do it just by myself, should I? I said, well, no, it's better if somebody's there representing the church. But he said, I, I'm afraid to go down in front of all those people. So I was thinking, what in the world could I suggest? And suddenly I remembered our altar guild was in the sanctuary that morning decorating for Advent. They were putting out all these pots of poinsettias and the garlands that they drape around. And I led him to this doorway right over there on the, on the north side, and I cracked the door where he could see, and I said, You see all those women working down there around the altar? They would be the church for you. I can go fill the font, put on my robe, and those women would be the church for you. How does that sound? He said he would like to do that. 
So I came in and asked all these women, about a dozen of them, would they be willing to be the church for David? And I knew they would say, of course, of course. So I got my robe and I filled the font. I came in and I asked them, come in nice and close, right close around him. And so I asked all the questions and he gave the right answers. I asked him to kneel. I prayed that God's Holy Spirit would whisper to his deepest heart, David, I know you. You are my son. I'm so glad you've come home to me. And I baptized him. And when I opened my eyes, all these women were crying. And I looked at him, a tear driven off his chin. And they all started hugging him. It was wonderful. He was raised with Christ. He was raised with Christ. Six weeks later, he was diagnosed with a very aggressive malignancy. And last month he died. And Dr. Tankersley had his funeral. And I told Bill before the funeral, I said, Bill, I don't know if very many people know what happened to David that day. Alter Gill knows. I know. God knows. Those are the most important things. I don't know how many of his family even know what happened that day. You can tell them David was raised with Christ. Number two. This author then says, Seek those things that are above. Set your mind, he then says, on things that are above. Seek them, set your mind on them. We always miss the Penseras when they go on vacation. I know everybody needs a vacation, but we miss them. However, they arranged good leadership for us last Sunday, didn't they? Rob Reck directed the choir, did a great job. Our organist emeritus, Fred Elder, came back to play for us. And we also had Kathy Venable here. Uh, many of you know Kathy. You know that nine months in the year she works in musical theater in New York City. And then in the summer, Kim, she comes home to Tulsa and she works with the Tulsa Light Opera all summer. She'd be going back to New York next week. But she was here last Sunday still, and so she joined Mr. Elder, she playing flute, he playing the organ. Monday morning, I got to my office. I turned on my computer to see if I had any news about my mom, members of my family. And here was a, an email from a television viewer, doesn't live in Tulsa. And she said, one of the reasons I tune in every Sunday on Channel 8 is to be blessed by the great music in your church. Week after week, she said, it's wonderful. Yesterday, she said, my favorite part was the offertory. She even had the right word, the offertory. And she said, the offertory was my favorite part, but I could not think what they were playing. What was the name of the piece they were playing? And I immediately emailed back to her, that was Felix Mendelssohn's great work. And while I heard it at 8.30 service and again at 11 o'clock service, I kept hearing in my deepest heart and mind a great soprano singing that or a great tenor singing that. If with all your heart ye truly seek me, you shall surely find me, thus saith the Lord. That's what it was. If with all your heart you truly seek me, ye shall surely find me. Thus saith the Lord. All right. Then this author says, all right, if you have been raised with Christ, if you have 
Now seeking things that are above, setting your aim, your mind on things above, then there are some things you need to leave behind. Be sure you've left behind. And he gives you two short lists, five in each one. The first five, all five of these Greek words have sexual connotations. Have to do with sexual immorality. I had the sermon finished by noon on Friday. Yesterday morning, I woke up on Saturday morning, I went out and got my two newspapers, I had the Tulsa World and the Wall Street Journal, went in, sat down in my favorite chair with a cup of coffee, and I started to read. There was a story about the head basketball coach in Louisville, Kentucky. Has a wife, has five children. One night he was eating in a restaurant, and a woman came over and said, How are you? And he said, I'm doing fine. Why don't we have sex? Or something like that. That's what seems to have happened. I don't know how you move so quickly from how are you to why don't we have sex. But that's, they got there that night, according to the story in the paper. And she ended up getting pregnant. And when she told him she was pregnant, he offered to give her $3,000 to go get an abortion. And she seems to have done that. And then she kept reading in the newspapers the last few years about how much money he was making coaching basketball at Louisville. And she wanted a million or two or three to keep quiet about what had happened. I kept thinking about that wife and five kids. What about her husband? What about her kids? Hmm? I turned the page and here was a story about a former United States Senator. He ran for President of the United States. His wife was battling cancer for the second time. And doctors had said to her, your malignancy has metastasized. We cannot cure you. We will fight as long as you're willing to fight. We can give you some quality of life for some indeterminable amount of time, but you're going to die sooner than most. But while he was in another state, he decided to have sex with one of the campaign workers. And a few months later, she said, I'm expecting your baby. He said, you're not. She said, I am. They had a DNA test. It was his. What about Governor Sanford? Absolutely lost his mind. Just lost his mind. I mean, not only did he do something terribly wrong, when he got home, he couldn't close his mouth. I mean, think about what this was doing to his wife and four little boys. Four little boys who are playing on the beach in the Atlantic Ocean. They're old enough to see the 6 o'clock news, the 10 o'clock news at night, and to hear their daddy saying, well, I'm going to go home and try to patch up things with my wife, but my love child is in Argentina. Or you could go to Governor Spitzer, McGreevy, or 12 years ago into the Oval Office. Take your pick. Is there any reason why this author would not have known all those years ago that when women and men do not deal responsibly with this great appetite, so many people get hurt? That's the way heathen acts, he said. That's the way pagans act. That's not the way you're supposed to act. And the other five items in the list are all about anger and speech. Anger and speech. You notice how these words get into our vocabulary? 
rage, road rage. Somebody pulls in a little close on you, so you pull in front of them, and you slow down, and you speed up, and you slow down, and you speed up. Is there any doubt that our language has been cheapened in our lifetime? Gail went to a movie the other day when I got home later that evening. I said, how was the movie? Well, she said, I thought it was just going to be boy meets girl. I've never heard such language, she said. The language they spoke to each other. Unbelievable. I remember the first movie that really shocked me with language was Serpico all those years ago with Al Pacino. I'd never heard that kind of language in a movie. I grew up in the oil field. Some of you know how roughnecks can talk, but not the ones I knew. Because my dad had made it very clear that when his two little boys were hanging around, there better be no foul language. I mean, not even a hell or a damn. The language was clean. All the years that I got to play football and basketball and run track, we didn't talk the way I hear kids talk now. I go out to watch grandsons practice, and I don't mean my grandsons, but I mean I hear other kids. Sometimes Gail and I are sitting in the stands, and we hear somebody let out a four-letter word you wouldn't believe in the middle of a kid's football game, baseball game. 10, 12, 14-year-old kids. It's unbelievable. Is there any doubt that our language has been cheapened? Cheapened. From the heart spews out the language that we use. And this author, 2,000 years ago, said, that's the way heathen act. That's the way pagans act. That's not the way you're supposed to act. Let's go to number four. I tell you, he said... I know the battles you're, you're, you're waging there in Colossae. People had very strong tribal loyalties, you know, OU, OSU, that sort of thing. Um, how ugly, hateful, mean they can be to each other. Uh, I tell you, in Jesus Christ, these old divisions have to go away. It can't be Jews and everybody else is a Gentile. It can't be Greeks and everybody else is a barbarian. It can't be males and females get whatever is left over. Slave, free, male, female, all are in Christ. Christ wants to be in all. Do you know the oldest Christian writing we have written by a woman? Scholars believe the oldest writing we have from a woman Christian comes from the year 203. About 170 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, this woman wrote a diary while she was in a dungeon in Carthage, North Africa, modern-day Tunisia. Her name was Perpetua. Perpetua. She's 22 years old. She was married, had her first baby. She was a nursing mother. She also had a slave. Perpetua was a Roman citizen, a woman of privilege. She'd been given a slave named Felicity. Felicity was 20. She was eight months pregnant. The two of them 
had been told about Israel's God and how that God had revealed himself in Jesus Christ and they had come to believe. They were both in a catechism class when the Roman authorities broke in. The Caesar in Rome at that time was Severus. And Severus had sent out an edict all around the Mediterranean world that these pagan, I mean these are Christians, were not going to be tolerated anymore, only the gods and goddesses of the Roman Empire, and that anyone found to be ascribing power to Israel's God or Jesus Christ, either one would be put to death. The teacher and the five who were studying catechism together were all arrested, thrown into the dungeon, and Perpetua wrote what happened day by day. Finally, they allowed her baby to be brought to her so that she could nurse him. But they were told that they were simply waiting for the next games with the gladiators, and they would be dealt with at that time. The day before, her father came, still heathen, still pagan, and shook her by the shoulder, she said, shook her and said, all you have to do is offer sacrifice to Caesar's gods. She said she couldn't do that. And so the day came. Gail's father's birthday, March 7, 2003. I mean, 203. 203. Uh, first, the four men out of the six were led up into the arena. The details say there was a wild boar, there was a bear, there was a leopard who were turned loose on the four men, and it didn't take long till all four of them were dead in the center of the arena, and then the two women were called for. Twenty-two years old, twenty years old, owner, slave. They came out of that dungeon holding heads, holding hands. They walked to the center of the arena, and the record says a mad cow saliva dripping from her mouth charged the two of them and knocked them to the turf the crowd screamed enough enough and so two gladiators were sent to the center of the ring to end their lives the one who struck Perpetua first was not successful in killing her he had to stick her again as the two women lay in the middle of the arena dying, they reached out to touch hands. The Roman Catholic Church said these women are saints. The Eastern Orthodox Church said these women are saints. The Anglican Church said these two women are saints. The Lutheran Church said these two women are saints. They seemed to understand what the writer to the church at Colossae was saying. I tell you, there is no Jew and Gentile, no Greek and barbarian, no male and female. All, all are one in Christ.